Welcome to Fiery Discourse, your podcast or media featuring 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 dragonesses, female dinosaurs, and other similar saurians and scalies. I'm your host, Lud Milanon, and with me are my hosts, Angron, Math Machine, Striker, and Lucky Evie. Today is our sixth episode, and we're discussing 1963's The Sword and the Stone. So, let's get things started. Oh, yeah. So, <sighs> so, so yeah, the Sword in the Stone is part of what is considered to be at least uh, informally amongst like Disney fans, you know, uh, filming stories that is part of Disney's Silver Age. I think that's kind of a misnomer because a lot of the movies made around this time were really just as good as the ones that were made in the classic era of Disney. Basically, uh, this was actually the last uh, Disney animated movie released during Walt Disney's li lifetime. He lived uh, throughout the entire production of The Jungle Book, but he passed away before it was actually theatrically released. So what's interesting about this is originally, the what had happened is this was originally pitched as a movie about Chanticleer. And what happened is that Walt Disney himself said he didn't understand it and decided to make a King Arthur movie instead. Ironically, the Chanticleer movie would get made some 30 years later as Rock-A-Doodle, made by Don Bluth. Mm. Nice. So that's actually where I got started. I got started from like a Disney pitch in like, you know, the early 60s. And then 30 years later, Don Bluth basically goes and makes it. See, I don't know about you guys, you know, if you guys you know, uh, really watch this, but for me, this was my favorite Disney movie as a kid. I watched, I had like a lot of the Disney movies on VHS, but for some reason, this was the one I watched over and over on VHS. Mm -hmm. you, you know, every kid like has that one movie, you know, they get fixated on, they just watch it over and over. This was that movie to me. So basically, I can recite this entire movie pretty much back to front at this point. Yeah. Uh, what also, uh, what I also find interesting about the movie uh, is the, oh, okay. Actually, on the subject of uh, the chickens and whatnot, uh, one that honestly gets a little uh, undersold is uh, Lady Cluck, or whatever her name was. Yeah, yeah, from oh, yeah, Robin Hood. Robin. That's another one. Uh, okay, no. Uh, Silver not movies. not that one, not that one. Uh, frick, what was her name? She had the big hat. She had the big bosom, except oh no, it was she was, that was a white. classic Disney character. Her name was uh, Clara Cluck. She was a uh, Clara Cluck. Cluck. That's who I was thinking of. Was from the uh, she was from the shorts era. Yeah, and uh, had a brief role in House of Mouse where uh, Donald uh, and her could have worked. Right, know. right. I remember that short. That was a good one. House of Mouse in general was a fun one. Yeah, they really, yeah. it really was done with a lot of love and a lot of care, and we are definitely going to talk about it on the podcast sometime, Mickey's House of Villains. Uh, that's probably going to be an episode, because Dragonus Maleficent does show up, however briefly. But yeah, like I say, that really is another classic moment, and like I say, uh, this era of Disney, I feel, kind of gets overlooked, and this movie in general, I feel like... The problem was it was sandwiched in between 101 Dalmatians and the Jungle Book, both of which were monster, monster, the uh, critical and commercial hits for Disney. Wait, now, what in the Jungle was, Book? The Jungle Book was after this. 101 Dalmatians was before this. Is oh, yeah. Right in the right. middle. 
But uh, like yeah. I said, this movie actually did very good at the box office. It got you know pretty decent reviews, all things considered. But I feel like it gets overlooked, and I feel that you know especially with time, it definitely is one of the more overlooked. It's not like Black Cauldron or anything, but I feel like personally for me, this movie could probably do use a bit more like love and respect, basically because you know as much as you know the Xerox method. Basically, you know, doesn't, you know, some people, you know, were against it, including Walt Disney himself. He felt it looked cheap. But I feel like for this movie, it especially works out in its favor because it gives it, I don't know, some kind of a, a fable, um, basically a viewpoint to it, if that makes any sense. Mm, yeah, it definitely does give it that sort of thing. I think what ultimately kind of peters it down a little bit is the fact that uh sometimes 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 uh it can sometimes lose track of what it's ultimately trying to accomplish i mean to be fair other films like the menu have this problem and i still love them all the same but it's uh it's definitely what uh both works and doesn't work about the uh movie if that makes any sense Right, right. Another thing I think that might uh, kind of bring it down is the issue with uh, Arthur's voice actor. What happened yeah. is that um, Arthur's voice actor, his original one, was going through puberty at the time, so he couldn't finish all of his lines. So they had to get a replacement voice actor, and they switched between like the first voice and the second voice pretty much mm, interchangeably, and it really can take you out. And yeah, I mean, it didn't really distract me all that much. I honestly didn't fully notice that. Yeah, I, I, I never noticed that. I, the only reason I know is that I've seen it so many times. But like I say, one uh, interesting fact is that his replacement voice actor would later voice uh, Mowgli in the Jungle Book just a few years later. So he got a much bigger role there. Mm, nice. And what's funny about the movie is they reused the same audio clip of, like, Arthur. Whoa, whoa, whoa! They reused that sound clip, like, I think 15 <laughs> times in the movie. Like, if you really watch it and you listen to it, it just keeps repeating that, like, audio clip at various points in the movie. It's like... I think you're underselling it. Exactly, exactly. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh... It was actually two voice actors that replaced the original, and they were both the director's sons. Right. Mm. Oh, two of them. Right. I didn't know that. I knew it was just. I knew that it was the director's son. Uh, uh what's his name? His thing. His name was Bruce Reitherman. He was Wolfgang Reitherman's son, and he did voice Mowgli in Jungle Book in, in 1967. So yeah. So yeah, like I say, sons, uh, Richard and Robert. Oh, oh, Rich and Ryan. What did I get the name Bruce? Oh, whatever. But anyway, uh, Bruce. <laughs> I know, I know. Hard <laughs> uh, Okay, but, but anyway, yeah. Uh, like I say, this definitely is an interesting take on the King Arthur legends. In that, you know, in that it really only focuses on what really is a brief part of like the King Arthur myths. Now, I have not read the Once and Future King, which this is based on, but I did read a lot of uh, King Arthur myths as a kid, like, you know, Gawain and the Green Knight, you know, Tristan and Isolate, you know, Mordred, all that stuff. So I think uh, very- I think Overly Sarcastic Productions also did a pretty interesting summary about this. Their, their channel is really amazing, too. They do a bunch of, like, history summarized and whatnot, and it's amazing. The style's really cute, too. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. I like didn't. I watch think I've heard it. of them. I think I've seen their videos. I like didn't watch. Yeah. It. While I didn't watch this movie very much as a kid, it's what got me interested in the uh, King Arthur uh, legend. 
Oh, it's definitely, it's a great, great introduction, I feel, to, you know, the things of the King Arthur myths. I feel like this movie is the perfect gateway for that. It definitely was mine, you know, and yep. to actually, you know, finding the books and reading about it and, su and stuff like that. So, yeah, basically what's interesting, too, about this is even though, of course, the movie is supposedly about, you know, uh, King Arthur, the real mm -hmm. star of the movie is Merlin. And that's because mm -hmm. he is such a fun character. Like, I hear yep. the name Merlin. I'm not thinking of, like, Sam Neill, or, like, the version from, like, the BBC series or whatever. I'm thinking of this version. When I, like, read the, you know, King Arthur stories or even just hear the name Merlin, the first thing that comes into mind is the version from this movie. He, he yeah. really is such a fun, you know, well-written, well-voice-acted character. He was also supposedly based a little bit on Walt Disney himself, according to uh, Bill Pete, who, <laughs> who was the uh, who was the director of the movie. Nice, He's not director, but an super, but uh, animation director, I should say. But yeah, yeah like I say, Merlin really definitely uh, steals the show. I feel, and he yeah. really is just such a great character. And I think the reason because of that, it's actually in some foreign countries, like here in Spain. The movie is actually called Merlin the Sorcerer, not the Sword and the Stone. So the international terrorists are like, up front, this is a Merlin movie, not a really a King Arthur movie, if that makes any mm. sense. Talk about false advertising. Yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But By the way, I posted the King Arthur thing uh, by OSP in the uh, designated chat, so definitely give it a watch when you got the time. Oh, I definitely, definitely will. Thanks for that. But yeah, no uh of course, man, we can't have Merlin without our Archimedes, who definitely is a great comedic foil, you know. He mm -hmm. is a little bit, kind of, I, I wonder if, because it was made around the same time, excuse me, a little bit like Owl from Winnie the Pooh, because that was actually being made around the same time, I think. Like Winnie Perhaps. the Pooh and you know, the honey tree and that, and the blustery day, oh, yeah. so. I, I mean, there's also really uh, Friend Owl and... Uh... What was that other? Oh yeah, Big Mama. Holy crap, that one. Yeah, well, that was that was a couple years later, but yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, also, the owl from a Sleeping Beauty. Let's not forget that one. That oh, actually yeah. might be where they got the character design from when you think about it. But absolutely, that's the, what I think uh, happened. Sir, the irony that you say that uh, he's a bit like Owl. Uh, he was actually voiced by Rabbit. Oh, awesome, awesome! Is he, I I love that. I love when you find out stuff like that because. Disney really is like a knot of voice actors and that if, if if one of them is in one movie and you look up their credits, chances are they did like five or six more. At least that oh, was yeah. the way you know, back in the thing. But like I say, it really, really that is awesome. And a uh, fun little bit of trivia. Um, the voice actors for Merlin and Archimedes were originally supposed to be flipped. Oh. They were originally wow, supposed to be each other. But they found that they actually worked better when they flipped the roles uh, because the voice actor for Archimedes had a, a much more sarcastic, dry wit, and the voice actor for Merlin uh, had this. Had a little uh, more whimsy. Yeah, more, yeah, like, more uh, whimsy, more fatherly kind of uh, right, mentor right. figure voice. I, I so they decided, well, okay, you're better at these roles than you are at the original roles we cast you for. Exactly. Oh, yeah. I can't see it being the other way, to be honest. I feel like that was, that actually might have hurt the movie if they went with the original way. I'm really glad they changed it in that case, because the oh, voice yeah, acting in this, at least for them, is just perfect. Same. Yep. Agreed. So, yeah. So, yeah um, normally, of course, we talk about Dragnesses and Dragness transformations and, you know, female dinosaurs that, but this movie, in general, 
has a lot of transformation. This might be oh, one yeah. of the largest, you know, transformation media-based thing because, of course, oh Arthur and Merlin become fish. They become, you know, squirrels. Squirrels, you know, birds, bird, in yeah. uh, Arthur's case. Right, right. Of course, the bird scene, too. And that's where we meet Madame Mim, but we'll get to her in just a little bit. But yep. yeah, the musical numbers, of course, are really good. They're written by the Sherman Brothers, I believe. And mm. of course, like I say, Higgins Figures, that alone is just, it's great. It's great. And I feel like people sleep on it, but it really, really is good. But getting back to the transformations for a second, uh, I really like how it keeps their characteristics, basically. How they actually manage to pull that off, you know, make them into different forms while still being recognizably them like with like for example the color schemes Absolutely. and like the tufts of hair and stuff it really really is well done and of course the one scene that is surprisingly popular on the internet is the squirrel sequence now i remember reading a fan theory this is a crazy crazy fan theory just going a little tangent here that you know merlin turns the female squirrel human and she becomes guinevere from the stories I don't know. Oh I don't know remember where I read it, but that is probably one of the craziest fan theories I read. When I read it, it was like, "I'm sorry, what? Who becomes Guinevere? The I've the female squirrel from the scene with you know Arthur turns into a squirrel and he meets you know, the one who fall, he, who falls in love with him in that. I remember Dang. reading like a fan theory where she becomes Guinevere from the stories. Now it, it is probably one of the craziest fandom theories out there and i certainly did not come up with it or anything but just wow you know it really does uh, uh, get on that on shit <laughs> i know mad patch <laughs> uh, really look into this <laughs> yeah he really I think the reason it exists is because that scene just went Way harder than it had any right to. Oh, it definitely, and, definitely did. And people are like wanting to find a happy went, ending for her. Of course. Yeah. Well, Disney in general really went hard back then. A lot of that stuff. Like even like when people say, "Oh, they softened up in the '50s," they they still went pretty hard. Harder than oh, they yeah. would today in some aspects. I feel. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, heck, it even the Renaissance has some pretty low hitting hitting points. Oh, definitely, definitely. Yeah, and even, and even more, and also, do you all remember the Jungle Jungle Book? Like, oh, seriously, yeah, yeah. they tied a freaking flaming thing to Shere Khan's tail, and it's like, yeah, dude, yeah. that is brutal. Oh, it definitely, definitely is. But yeah, like I say, uh, I believe like you know the wolf shows up in that uh, scene, and it's actually the animation is actually well not just up, not just the animation, but also the character design was reused from the earlier short Lambert the Sheepish Lion. One thing about Disney in the uh, Silver Age, which is generally considered to be from 101 Dalmatians until The Fox and the Hound, is that they reused a lot of stuff. It's probably the most notable in Robin Hood, where they actually took like sequences from Snow White and they just drew Maid Marian over it, basically. But it's I still a fantastic that. movie. But you can notice like the little animation shortcuts if you have like you know keen eyes like that. Mm-hmm. And I certainly do, for the most part. I mean, there's seen there's... a lot of that too. So. In this one, they did that actually a couple times, uh, even with its own self. Uh, one where um, Sir Ector is wagging his finger at the camera. He does that like three different times. Right, mm. right. Yeah, I remember that. I remember that. Also, the part with the K, you know, um, I think like 
eating the chicken bone or, you know, eating like the chicken drumstick, that's actually a reused thing. If you look closely, they cut away and then they cut right back to it. And it's actually the same animation reused. Yep. So, yeah, like I say, uh, the thing that's interesting about this movie, too, is, of course, later on when uh, Arthur basically gets his chance to be a squire for, you know, Kay and Sir Ector, that Merlin just gets, you know, so angry at him. It seems abrupt, but it also is kind of in character because he feels like I think he's squandering his potential. But in a way, that brings me to my next point, which is that Merlin in the uh, Arthur stories and possibly this movie, if the ending quote is any indication, can see into the future. So maybe this was kind of like a test sort of thing. What do you guys think? Mm. Uh, there is a possibility of that uh, because the, the way that Merlin saw into the future was he saw vagaries of the future, uh, besides the fact that he went to the future himself, because he he knew that someone was coming, but he didn't know who in the beginning of the movie. And mm. throughout the whole movie, he does not know that Arthur is going to be king of England. He just knows that he's going to be someone important. Right, so right. there's a you chance see, like, that flashes this- of it. Precognition was a test, but there's also a chance that he thought that this was the kid diverting from the future that he was going to be something important as well. Right, but he ended up being proven wrong because he pulls the scalibur out of the stone, which really is such a beautiful moment. The way it's framed, you know, the way it's uh, basically the music swells up in that and sparkles. It really is just such a beautiful yet understated moment. Okay. And- okay. Actually, on that note, I kind of want to shit on it a little bit because you're ahead and you're ahead we're open to all opinions here we are indeed. that sword in particular isn't excalibur hear me out the real excalibur was actually got from the lady of the lake that right, is just right. a sword that was put in the stone by merlin that could very well be i did not consider that before wow wow you this is actually making me rethink it. Hold on, because, well, <laughs> well, does well, like I say, he meets the Lady of the Lake after he becomes king, correct? So right. that would take place after the events of this movie. So, wow, you actually might be right. For the longest time, I and uh, a lot of people, you know, think it's a scalaver, but wow, I never even considered that before. Yeah, you, my friend, have completely blown my perception. <laughs> Yep. There's a lot of things I liked about school. History was one of them. Yeah, it's yeah. Mainly I because it was the easiest to like memorize for tests same and whatnot. Here, same here. I love history. You know, that was the main subject. That and you know English because I could like do like creative writing and just you know, do whatever. That was same. I feel ya. Someone should tell a lot of people like game companies about that because like um, well, they're doing a lot of. Uh, references to um, Excalibur these days, and uh, just the sword and the stone. Right, right. Well, even yeah, yeah, that's true too. Because yeah, you know, we're not the only ones making that mistake. There's a lot of people that are. But like I say, uh, getting back, like, you know, uh, sorry, just oh, it's okay. uh, like that Mad Machine said, you know, Merlin going back, you know, Merlin coming back from the future. The whole you know, blow me to Bermuda bit was actually in the book. I remember reading that. The tourist outfit wasn't, but I feel that is the funniest joke in the movie. That, you know, the 
But, you know, Arthur's trying to escape the castle. You know, every time he opens the door, it's, Hail Arthur! Hail our true king! And then, you know, the door opens up and Merlin comes and he's dressed like a Hawaiian-suited Taurus. That is just so funny. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty hip, not gonna lie. Yeah, no. Yeah, like, for its time really? period as well. Makes you wonder if, like, Master Roshi got inspiration from this, you know? Master Roshi! <laughs> oh, well... Maybe, maybe it could, but like came out and said uh, Roshi was inspired by Merlin, which could be cool if it really was. Very, very good oh, man. All right. <laughs> So yeah, now uh, Sir Ector and Kay are decent enough antagonists, but there's another antagonist that oops, sorry, there's another antagonist that we are going to talk about right now, and that is Madame Mim. Now mm -hmm. she actually appears for a very short time in the movie, I believe, less than maybe around like 20 minutes of screen time total. But she makes the most of it. I mean, from like the moment she's on screen, it is just so so. You know, she is such a well written well animated well voice acted character and for the longest time i thought she was voiced by june foray you know the actress who played you know the grandmother in looney tunes rocky the flying squirrel witch hazel from looney tunes and witch hazel from disney they were they had two evil witches called witch hazel voiced by the same woman from the same from two different companies Holy but yeah it, it turns out it's not june foray and that was a very big shock to me when I you know, looked up and I found that out because I always was under that assumption. Well, what do you know? Yeah, no, oh, exactly. But yeah, like I say, uh, I love how like taunting she is with Arthur on that. How she basically, you know, basically is almost like you know. Well, of course she turns into a cat, but it's like it's a cat toying with the prey and that. And like I say, just the mm -hmm. way it's done is so so. You know, really creative, I feel. They really took the idea of the character and really improved it. And, of course, it's cause... Uh, she is the cause of one of my favorite pieces of animation, probably of all time, I'm going to be honest. And I know that's, you know, giving it probably higher praise than it deserves, but I love the wizard duel. That is probably one of my yeah. favorite pieces of animation, period. And, like, any film ever is the wizard's duel. Because it I mean, is just... I mean, it's no Black Clover or Fairy Tale or no, 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 I don't like know. That, I'm lowballing it, here. Freaking uh, Magica or <laughs> right, right. But yeah, it, it's uh, it's pretty yeah. wild. Not gonna lie, it's uh, it's filled with transformations. Let's be fair. Yeah, that too. That that or even for, Little Witch Academia. Sorry, what Tracker? Little Witch Academia. I was thinking. I haven't seen oh, that yet. Same here. Same here. Oh, but serious, you should. Okay. I definitely will keep that in mind. But yeah, uh, one thing that's funny is like when I watched Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets and, you know, Snape was like, now we are going to do a wizard's duel. I was like, oh, man, they're going to turn to animals and attack each other. And it's like, no, no, they don't do that. They just shoot balls of light at each other. But, you know, okay. missed opportunity. The, the one in, you know, the other movie is good. The one between oh, yeah. Dumbledore and Voldemort. But I'm talking about the one in Chamber of Secrets. That is some lame stuff right there for a wizard's duel. Yeah. Mm. 
Yeah, yeah, I will say the duels in Harry Potter can get pretty damn hectic sometimes, you know? Yeah, and like the like I feel like there's ways you could have made them more visually interesting than just shooting like beams of light at each other. Because I mean it's like at that point, you know, it's like you have magic, you can do all kinds of crazy stuff, and yet you're just, you know, shooting beams of light, you know, do something a little more, you know, creative. I mean they do, they do on sporadic occasions, but I feel like that's one of the weaknesses. But getting back to this wizard's duel, I just love how creative they get with all the animal forms in that. And of course, with the character animation of each one, how they move and how they all keep the characteristics like Mim is pink and Merlin's blue. You know, they all have Mim's wild hair and Merlin's you know, mustache and glasses. Beard. It, it re- Sorry? Beard. <laughs> the beard. <laughs> the beard. <laughs> oh sorry for that but yeah no i just love how they do that because it really is just so creative and of course i mean you know archimedes is right mim instantly cheats like as soon as they do the paces the first thing she does is cheat and it really is just so fun how it just escalates and builds up and builds up it really just keeps you wondering what happens next and fun fact the elephant form was actually reused from a short called goliath the second and would later be reused, I believe, in the Jungle Book for Winifred, which is also uh, Verna Felton's last role, if anyone's curious. But yeah, now it's time, you know, after that, you know, she turns to Rhino, she gets knocked off the cliff, she becomes a dragon. And this is, it's definitely one of the more interesting ones, because it's Disney kind of spoofing themselves, and that it's and that Mim's dragon form is kind of a spoof of Maleficent, it's a parody. They use, like, the same cliff setting. I believe they even use similar music, like, sound-alike music, if not the same exact music cue. But oh, wait, wait. So back that up. Yep. So Goliath the second. what what cell was reused again? Um, Mim's elephant form, the design of it, was basically mm. reused uh, from this short. They basically took it and they drew over it and they drew, you know, Mim's facial features on it. I see. Gotcha. Right, now- now, getting back to Mim's dragon form, is that, like I say, it's kind of a parody of Maleficent. It's Disney basically lightheartedly poking fun at itself, and it is a lot of fun. Let me tell you, like, you know, you have her, you know, screeching and that, breathing fire, the whole classic thing, but it's so over the top to where it's meant to be, com- it's meant to be comedic, and I feel that it's one instance where it really does work and out into its favor. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm personally not that big a Madam Men fan, but yeah, I will admit the fight in general, as well as uh, some of their uh, clever uses of transformations, was certainly impressive, to say the least. I don't know, like I say, from the from an aesthetic standpoint, it's not the greatest, but it's not meant to be aesthetically pleasing, I feel. I feel like that's kind of missing the purpose if you're just picking from an aesthetic point of view. The point for this, at least, Dragonus and this, you know, Dragonus form is the intent. And I feel on that front, it definitely sells it perfectly. Yep. Mm. It's also funny that, you know, Merlin technically wins the wizard duel, you know, by, yeah. in a way, sort of cheating. Because, you know, is a germ technically an animal? I mean, it's alive, but... Okay, for technicality's sake, I will say yes. Because it falls within the six main biological things. Protozoa, fungi, uh, antibacteria, uh, 
Animalia, Plante. You get what I'm saying? Yeah, right, right. I, I, understand. He, I understand. Also, he didn't turn invisible. So no, he turned into a germ and he all got her sick and that's how he won. Yep. But yeah, like uh, I said, it, it is a lot of fun, though. It definitely is one of my, uh, you know, favorite pieces of animation, period. I just feel like how they do the characteristics and how they do the movements. I'm not saying, you know, like the animation is, you know, technically, technically, you know, beautiful. But just the way it's done, the way it flows, the way they, they do the different characteristics, it really is just such a fun time. It easily is the most iconic part of the movie, in my opinion. And for a lot of people, too. And I, what, I just love the characterization of Mim herself. She is just... Oh, she's amazing. She is such an underrated Disney villain. I'm amazed yeah. that they don't use her in more stuff. She oh, well, is, that's the thing. Sorry, sorry. Good. She is just deliciously evil and just loves it. it, it the way I've described her, especially in recent months, is she walked so characters like Jack Horner could run. Oh, you can oh, yeah. you can make a direct Ooh. line from stuff like her to Jack Horner, basically. And that you know, it's definitely a type of villain that Disney had never really done before. This when you think about it, all the villains, you know, for the most part, okay, you had guys like Captain Hook who were somewhat goofy but still <laughs> serious, you know, legitimate threats, and she is as well. But she has a little bit of an edge to her. I yeah, feel she... that really just pushes her along. And like I say, it's funny you said that about uh, you know, people using her. She is very popular in, like, the Netherlands and in Italian Donald Duck comics. I don't know if you know, like, you know, Carl and Don Rosa and that. Madame Mim has made several appearances in those uh, foreign European Disney comics. Holy oh, crap. Uh, really? Nice. Yeah. Probably by... She's a reoccurring character in them. Oh, damn. Wizards of Mickey series, then. Yeah, definitely, Dang. definitely. And what's interesting, she actually had a much larger part in one of the original scripts. I remember reading this. She actually was going to be more like, you know, she was still going to be herself, but she was also going to be kind of more like a Morgana Le Fay type of persona. She was going to have, like, the Black Knight, the one uh, who in the final cut of the movie just has, like, one or two lines. Basically, he was going to be her servant, and he was actually going to try and find Arthur to try and stop him from being king of England, that kind of thing. I remember that it was actually was considered, but I think cut out for, I don't know, maybe time constraints. I'm kind of glad they did, actually, because I feel like this version of her, where she's just, you know, she doesn't have an ulterior motive. She's just there to cause chaos and basically, you know, do whatever the hell she wants. That, I feel, mm. is a much more compelling character like, than, like, a generic evil witch or something. Yep. Mm. That, that's what really makes Mim work, is she has no motivation. She has no exactly. uh, plan. She has no desire. She has no alliance. She's she has nothing. She's just it's there. fun. She's yeah, like, it's just, in a way, you can say it's like the Joker. It's like the Joker. You know, some men just want to watch the world burn. It's kind of like exactly. that if you want to get right down to it. Oh, yeah. yeah. She's 100% the Joker, but a little more loony and a little more magic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, definitely not as homicidal. Still homicidal, but not as homicidal. Oh, yeah. Not as homicidal as some of the shits Joker's done. Let, let's be fair. The comics do not paint him in a very in a very great light sometimes. Of course, of course. But, yeah, the fun, the interesting thing about this is that, you know, of course, Disney did all of their direct-to-video sequels and that. They did, like, TV follow-ups. 
this was one of the movies that never got anything. It was like one and done. There wasn't even anything considered. And that to me is interesting because I feel like you could have followed up on this. But on the other hand, this is perfect the way it is. It ends perfectly. It just, it wraps itself up nicely. And I feel like it really is a lot of fun. This movie is, it, it really, I think, shows the difference between Disney then and Disney now. I mean, Disney now still makes some very good work, like, you know, Encanto and stuff like that. But it feels like they don't know how to make just loose, freewheeling, fun movies like this. That yeah, you know, they, it doesn't have like a big message or like a grandiose, you know, overinflated of itself or anything. It just is there to have a good time and entertain you and stuff like that. And I feel like that's something that Disney really should try to go back to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they have to stroke their ego these days, so. Exactly, exactly. Everything has to be like some grandiose adventure or like some big, you know, message movie or something. It's like. You can't just have a movie be a movie, you know, have like, you know, have a little moral in it, but also just be like a fun ride. Oh, and okay, I thought that way a lot about the Silver Age, like with Robin Hood especially, and that's going to tie into our question of the week, which is, which uh, Disney movie is your favorite from the Silver Age? Now, the Silver Age is going to be defined as 101 Dalmatians to the Fox Black and the Hound. Um, oh. The, the Black Hawkins actually considered to be the, believe it or not, to be the Bronze Age. That's the that's basically a, oh. a Black Cauldron, Great Mouse Detective, and Oliver and Company. I don't know I why. See. That's just what some people on the internet say. I I don't buy any of this at all. To me, the Disney animated okay. canon, all of it is good. So but, from 101 Dalmatians to Fox and the Hound, got it. Okay. Right. My I'll go first. I'll say my personal favorite. As much as I love this and I love Aristocats and. Yeah, you know, Rescuers is a fun time too. My favorite is definitely 150% Robin Hood. God, mm. there's just some. I know it's definitely still. technically, yeah, it's technically probably the weakest of them because you know they do all that reusing of the animation and such. And believe it or not, Don Bluth actually worked on it, and nice. he apparently did not enjoy working on it. Sadly, but. I just feel like, I don't know, it really is just so much fun. It's a movie that you could just watch, again, like like uh, you know, Sword and Stone. You could watch this movie again and again and again, and it is just such an amazing time. The characters are all instantly iconic. It's like, you know, people are still trying to make Robin Hood movies, like the one, uh, like the one with, oh God, what was it? The one with uh, Russell Crowe, and then you had the one made a couple of years ago, and it's like, why are you even trying? Disney did it perfectly. Even like the Kevin <laughs> Costner one. It's like, Disney did it perfectly. What are you doing here? Oh, <laughs> you know, but it really... I also like the one with Morgan Freeman. Yeah, right. Yeah, that that's uh, that's the one with the Kevin Costner, Prince of Thieves. Nice. Oh, boy. I will say this. Uh, I do, in fact, have like a uh, top five. Uh Ooh, go ahead. Uh, five would have to be uh, Aristocats. Uh, four would have to be uh, 101 Dalmatians. Uh, three would have to be Jungle... Oh, wait, actually, four is Jungle Book. Three is 101 Dalmatians. Two is The Fox and the Hound. And number one would 100% have to be Robin Hood. It's fun. It's... Pretty much, you pretty much all you said applies to that. I'm 
uh, I really don't mind the reused animation because it gets across that it's fun, still trying to be fun. Yeah, and the reused animation. Yeah, like, funny. it's really rewatchable, and it's one of my favorite classic Disney films, period. Like, don't get me wrong, I really enjoy uh, the Aristocats. It's, a nostal- it's nostalgic for a reason, but, like, something else about Robin Hood, man. Exactly, exactly. Also, there's a YTP made by... Uh, uh, whatever his name was, that's really en- enjoyable. Oh, I think I remember that. Yeah, it was Fires uh, rubbing wood. Uh, exactly, something like that. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, that was a hilarious one too. One of the yeah, best it, one of the it has a cohesive story, and you know what the weird thing is? Like, it doesn't demoralize Robin Hood, but it actually makes freaking uh Prince John of all people more competent. Exactly, if that exactly. makes any sense, like he he's actually a he's actually a pretty straightforward ruler he he addresses a problem like friar tuck and like actually takes action like he's being an actual ruler it's pretty wild not gonna lie Mm. Uh, what's your favorite uh, math machine what'd you say Uh, but from between uh, 101 Dalmatians and Fox and the Hound what would you say is your uh, favorite of the Disney uh, Silver Frick. Age, basically? I forgot to mention Pete's Dragon and Bedknobs and Broomsticks. Also, Mary Poppins. Don't forget those. Right, right. I don't know if those are considered part of the animated canon, although they're all fantastic, fantastic movies, too. Okay, yeah. Yeah. In any case, you have the floor. Uh, I'm going to make it three for three. Uh, absolutely. Nice. Absolutely, Robin Hood. Uh that was just my favorite as a kid from this era of Disney, like bar none, just the adventure style that it was, was great. The animation worked really well with this. Uh, and I love the character designs for all of the characters. Oh, that's okay. Uh, okay. Um, striker. Oh, it's obvious. Absolutely. Robin hood. Like I, I grew up watching this movie when I was a kid, and years later, I bought it on Blu-ray, and I just watched it again, and I remembered why I love this movie so much. Mm-hmm. And despite all the oh, reused animation and all of its flaws, what the hell? It's based on one of my favorite characters from uh, folklore and uh, myth, you know? Oh, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Okay, and uh, Lucky Evie, what would you have to say? I wasn't really exposed to, like, any of the Silver Age movies. Mm. Uh, I see, I see. Like, I didn't go up with Disney, like, at all. Mm. So, what, so, but out of all of the uh, 60s stuff that we talked about, what would you say would be the, would be the movie that would most interest you to, like, go and watch it? I don't know. That's all right. That's all right. Okay. Um, mm. All right. So and now it is time for the uh, patent pending Dragonist scale where we rank them. And this time, of course, we are going to rank Madame Mim. And I will give her probably the lowest score I have given a Dragonist yet. Mm. I'm going to give her a 7 out of 10. And I think the reason for that is that 
aesthetically, I can't give her anything higher because she's mental, you know, goofy and, you know, silly and that. Well, not not too comical, like, you know, not like overly cartoonish, but she's not meant to be like, you know, f overly fearsome like Maleficent. But I feel like for the intent they had of the character and basically for how it ties in basically as a, basically the end point of the wizard's duel, basically like the final obstacle of it. And just the fact that it really is well done in general and, you know, it's a parody of Maleficent herself. I would have to give it a 7 out of 10. Yeah, I will give it something lower. Oh? Uh, I will have to say the highest she deserves is a 5 out of 10. Wow, that's the lowest score on this scale yet. Now... Don't get me wrong. She's a pretty solid foil. She's a solid character. She's a pretty pretty impressive villain. Uh, and the magic duel, again, gives her mad brownie points. So maybe I'll think about raising it to a 6 out of 10. But what holds her back for me is that, A, again, not really a big Madame Mim fan. Like, there are way better villainesses out there. She is not among the worst, but she doesn't really do much for me second her dragoness if we're judging based on her dragoness form it doesn't really appear all that much it's like her but it's a lot shorter like about five minutes tops i want to say or maybe 10 but yeah and also she doesn't she doesn't exhibit any of the dragoness traits so to speak like, granted, she does breathe fire, she does do that stuff, but she's more in control, and she, and again, it's brief, but she doesn't really take full advantage of the dragon form, if you get what I mean. And thirdly, it's gonna be a little rough for me to say this, but Sword in a Stone, it's a good movie, but I can't really say it's one of my favorites. So that's also what keeps it down. She's Nothing not a bad you. character, but I will say this. I wish she could have been just a little more better. Right, right. Okay, uh, Math Machine, what would you give her? Uh, are we basing this off the character in her entirety or just the Dragoness form? Both. Well, let's say both, yeah. Both okay, are good. Because uh, this is going to be two vastly different things then. If we're going as the character as a whole... Like I said, love Mim. I think that she is so underused by Disney. I think that um, she is just a great inspiration for a lot of villains that we're now starting to see come about. <laughs> I can't believe it took that long for us to get more just evil for the sake of evil villains. Uh, yes. As a character overall, uh, she's like a 9 or a 10. When we're talking about the dragoness, though, 5. I just so if we're finding middle ground on that, that's pretty much a seven out of ten. All right, I'll mark it as a uh, five out of ten with nine out of ten in the brackets on the scale. Yeah, okay. just the dragoness form just look does not click with me. If uh, Don Bluth watched this and was inspired by this to make Singe, I can absolutely see the line between this and Singe, but it just there's something about it that just does not look appealing. And I just don't know what it is exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah, I feel ya. Right. What about you, Striker? 
Um, I barely remember the character. I think I'm gonna have to get back to you on the on the scale. Mm, All right, that's okay. okay. You can always uh, you can always tell us uh, next week or the week after, um, and uh, we'll just leave it as watching it tonight. Oh, okay. Sweet. Awesome, awesome. So Sweet. definitely uh, get back to us with uh, what it'll be for next week's episode then. Yeah. All right, so right now we'll just leave it blank. And uh, Lucky Evie, what would you give her? Five out of ten for previously stated reasons. Okay, uh, all right. Nice. So that means Mim is currently the lowest scoring Dragonist, but that's definitely not uh, not anything bad, of course. All right, and I think that just about does it for this episode. If you have any questions or you want to engage in a wizard's duel, you can email us at fieryDiscourse at Outlook.com or visit us on Twitter at Twitter.com slash FieryDiscourse. Next time is going to be a two-for-one, as we're going to be talking about the 2011 short film, Reversal of the Heart, and the 26... And the, sorry, and the 2016 short film, Dragon in Distress. We're going to mm-hmm. talk about two dragonesses in one episode because it's the same basic concept. You know, a princess gets cursed by a name. Basically, a princess gets cursed to turn into a dragon. But they both go about it in two very different ways, which I feel is very interesting how we can mm-hmm. compare, and con- compare and contrast them. But oh, yeah. uh, until then, uh, this has been uh, Fiery Discourse. Thank you so much for listening. And until next week, uh, take care. And if any of you want to do that wizard duel, just be sure not to go up against Asa. He's kind of a loose cannon in terms of, like, uh, non-magic. Peace. All right. Thank you so much for listening. And until then, see you next week. Peace. Peace. Adios.